Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing, Clark Hilton Engineering, and Dan Rice has given up his office for the sake of the cause. Today we're going to share a classic interview with Michael Barone, how America's political parties change and how they don't. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Well, Tropical Storm Isaias, or something like that, battered Florida's east coast with heavy rains on Sunday. It's now on track to be at near hurricane strength when it reaches the Carolinas. As of 11 o'clock p.m., the National Hurricane Center in Miami said the storm was located about 50 miles east of Cape Canaveral, Florida, and 365 miles south of Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Maximum sustained winds have increased uh, slightly to 70 miles per hour as it continues to move north northwest at a speed of 9 miles per hour. The storm is expected to be at near hurricane strength when it reaches the coast of northern South Carolina and uh, southern North Carolina on Monday night and strong tropical force winds are likely with hurricane conditions in the hurricane watch area, again, according to the National Weather Service. Steve Hilton, host of The Next Revolution, appealed to the Trump campaign to turn up the heat on Sunday, expressing concern over their baffling complacency. Fears will result in a Joe Biden victory this November. Well, during his opening segment on Sunday night, Hilton said the prospect of a Biden presidency gets closer every day because the baffling complacency of the Trump campaign. Where's the energy, he asked. Where are the ideas and the hope for the future? Two weeks ago, we were promised exciting policy announcements in the next two weeks. And we're still waiting. After going dark on TV for a few days this week, President Trump's reelection campaign is expected to return to the airwaves with new ads starting today. Well, officials are apparently oblivious as recreational boaters um, surround the drop zone for the returning SpaceX capsule. Recreational boaters got a lot closer than they should have to the SpaceX capsule, carrying two U.S. astronauts after it landed in the Gulf of Mexico on Sunday, catching NASA officials off guard. That was not what we were anticipating, NASA Administrator Jim Bridestein said at a press conference addressing the private boaters who greeted the craft with astronauts Robert Benkin and Douglas Hurley aboard. Several boats with multiple passengers, including one flying a Trump campaign flag, could be seen on a live stream that captured the historic voyage surrounding the floating capsule after it safely touched down. Bridenstine noted that the U.S. Coast Guard cleared the landing for the craft, and it wasn't until after splashing down that the spectators crept close. Cuban business owners in um, Louisville decries the Black Lives Matter protesters' demands as mafia tactics. And uh, Sturgis uh, rally is expected 250,000 stirring coronavirus concerns. Clinton's ex-White House spokesman says Joe Biden should not debate President Trump. And Pelosi has announced she has no confidence in top White House coronavirus advisor Deborah Burks. Microsoft TikTok officials in the White House, they're talking to prevent a total ban. And luxury department store Lord & Taylor has filed for bankruptcy. I'm not sure where I'm going to find the Christmas gift for James Blend this year. Elon Musk praises smart, hardworking people in China, sees complacency entitlement growing in America. 
And the Seattle City Council is looking to abolish its police force this coming days after 59 Seattle officers were hurt in the Seattle riots. Under the council's plan, the police would be replaced by a community-led safety provision program who would be charged with policing, which essentially makes them police by another name. Well, Portland protests have grown more violent as the feds have stepped back. Now, this is interesting because other headlines I read said they were less violent. But new violence over the weekend seems to undercut city and state leaders' claims that it was the presence of the feds that had sparked the violence. Portland police also reported Sunday morning that they're seeing demonstrators cloaking themselves as journalists to engage in the violence, a tactic the federal officers also faced, and one that complicates questions about press freedom and the ability to control crowds. And a man was filming the burning of Bibles in front of the federal courthouse in Portland. These Bibles were made available for free to anyone who wanted them. They were readily taken and then summarily burned in front of the uh, federal courthouse. Meanwhile, the Portland mayor, who has uh, been excusing the violence, is drafting plans to revitalize downtown business. But business owners fear it's likely to be too little, too late. Well, the Wall Street Journal analysis of crime statistics among the nation's 50 largest cities found that reported homicides were up 24% so far this year to 3,612. Shootings and gun violence also rose, even though many other violent crimes, such as robbery, fell. New York City has already surpassed the shootings from all of 2019, and it's only the 2nd or 3rd of August. Some Chicago leaders are demanding that schools stop teaching history until it can be retooled to teach a new version of it, they say. Nancy Pelosi says Dr. Burks can't be trusted because Trump appointed her. I think the president is spreading disinformation, she said, about the virus, and she is his appointee. And so I don't have confidence there. No. This is a quote from Nancy Pelosi on ABC's This Week. Her comment came after Politico reported Friday that uh, Pelosi said in a private meeting Thursday that Dr. Burks was the worst which came after a July 18th article in the New York Times that described her as overly optimistic about the impact of opening the economy. Another story notes she was previously appointed by President Barack Obama to be the ambassador at large and U.S. global AIDS coordinator. She was competent, apparently, then. Meanwhile, a New York Times White House correspondent complained in a tweet, still no national mask mandate, and Jay Cost says this is what happens when a whole generation learns about government from the West Wing. Black Lives Matter, um, a group, is harassing Minnesota senator at his home. This is becoming more common. Shouting, banging on his door, demanding he come out. One man stood on his lawn, banging a drum. I'm not sure how that connects with the message, Black Lives Matter. On Friday, Beijing's local factum would use the pandemic as an excuse to postpone elections for a year, and dissenters are being arrested or fired. The Legislative Council elections were scheduled for September, but Chief Executive Carrie Lam invoked emergency powers to cancel them. She claims there is absolutely no political agenda behind the postponement. Okay, but Beijing clearly fears the will of Hong Kong voters. Barbie is making a comeback as kids are stuck at home. Maybe they're looking for companionship. North American consumers are splurging on old school entertainment favorites like Barbie dolls and the card game Uno, which makes Mattel a winner in an otherwise depressed economy. Sales are expected to continue to be strong in the coming months. As schools remain closed, Mattel has uh, seen its shares rise about 4%. Well, good for them. Well, a response to the ACLU-led effort to force girls to compete against boys 
A letter calling for the NC2A to support female athletes now has over 300 signatures. Well, the far-left female soccer player Megan Rapinoe is among those pushing for men to be able to compete as women. Well, organization, uh, an organization is warning that wealthy New Yorkers may not return, saying wealthy New, York, uh, New Yorkers who fled the city during the coronavirus crisis don't want to come back and may be further deterred by talking of rising taxes and economic uh, watchdog warned Sunday that uh, wasn't um, they want rather to go to the office, but they don't want to come back to the city. Partnership for NYC President Catherine Wilde said on Sunday in the New York Post. Meanwhile, New York faces a budget deficit of $30 billion. Wow, that's, uh, that is significant. The Portland Wall of Moms is now feuding with Black Lives Matter. A BLM attacked Wall of Moms, saying the anti-blackness showed its ugly face post-millennium um, published that story. The very white leadership of Wall of Moms apparently later gave top roles to black women but didn't involve them in key decisions. Christina Summers writes, Wall of Moms' Twitter account has been commandeered by someone who sounds power mad and unstable. Founder Bev Barnum is being overthrown for failing to defer to black voices. The media has underestimated how dysfunctional things are in Portland in the protest community. Local pastor has reported that the Revolutionary Communist Party group just came up from L.A. and they're going to be here for the next couple of weeks at, a pro- at the protests. So far, uh, they shut down several local black voices who spoke against violence. Don't believe for one minute that everybody down here is local to our city. Again, a quote from a local pastor. And the very biased uh, Southern Poverty Law Center despises conservative groups. Bezos told a lawmaker challenging him on the SPLC that I accept what you're saying, that the SPLC and U.S. Foreign Asset Office were not perfect. And I would like to uh, like a better source if I can get it. That is uh, what we'll use today. The Alliance Defending Freedom has made clear uh, that they're prepared to step in uh, to that uh, into that voice. From Congressman Matt Gates, the Southern Poverty Law Center is itself a hate group. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a quick break and we'll continue to take a look at the news. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're taking a look at some of the headlines from the last uh, few days. Domino's has been ripped for their fun pizza for Karen's promotion. I don't know the story behind it all, but it was a fun pizza for Karen's promotion. You know, a promotion was supposed to be lighthearted. One paper reported the offer was immediately criticized with many arguing that Karen negativity was an issue that affected mostly privileged white women. So we have to somehow relate uh, even the purchase of pizza and a name used in a lighthearted promotion with race these days. It is a sad state of affairs. CNN says that individuals with a cervix should have cancer screening. The media giant just could not bring itself to say the simple word woman. So individuals with a cervix should have cancer screening. You can figure it out amongst yourselves. Well, so much for hoping the vindictive case against uh, Michael Flynn couldn't get any more theatrical. According to CNBC, a federal appeals court on Thursday tossed out its order that a trial court judge dismissed the criminal case against the former Trump national security advisor, Michael Flynn, and said it will rehear arguments on the issue. The ruling is a blow to the retired Army Lieutenant General and the Justice Department, which has asked the trial judge to drop the charge. What a shame that such a brilliant patriot is being handcuffed, not just by the deep state, but by judicial activists. Observers make the point. Well, the Senate has adjourned until 3 p.m. on Monday as 
Congress failed to reach an agreement on extending extra unemployment benefits that are set to expire last Friday. Axios reveals the report adds Senator Ron Johnson attempted Thursday afternoon to unanimously pass a short-term extension of the benefits at a reduced level of $200 per week, which was summarily rejected by Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. Schumer then attempted to pass a $3 trillion relief bill that the House Democrats approved in May. That, too, was blocked and condemned by Majority Leader Mitch McConnell as a totally unserious proposal. It all starts up again today, local time, 3 o'clock. YouTube claims uh, removal of Heather McDaniel's BLM live stream was a mistake, but adds an age restriction nevertheless. And Bill Clinton visited Jeffrey Epstein's private island, unsealed court documents suggest, although there have been images that I think people thought were uh, was evidence prior to this. And the FBI finds two material errors in the audit of 29 FISA applications against American citizens. The Carter Page FISAs had 17 significant omissions. And peaceful protests, 24 people have died since since violence erupted following George Floyd's death. 24. NBA players protest the national anthem as the league returns to action, and Trader Joe's announces it will not pander to a petition calling product names racist. On the brighter side, seasonal flu reports hit record lows amid global social distancing. And weekly jobless claims have risen for a second straight week with 1.434 million, and the Eurozone GDP plunged by a record 12.1% of in the second quarter. Big four tech titans Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google have added $250 billion to their combined market value. Well, the St. Louis County prosecutor reopened the Michael Brown shooting case but won't charge Darren Wilson, according to the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And a grand jury has indicted a Tennessee Democrat state senator on theft charges. Chinese and Russian hackers are sanctioned by uh, Europe for the first time. And uh, Hong Kong, or rather the Chinese Communist government, uh, has postponed elections there. Well, taking a look at history, 1936, one of my all-time favorites, Jesse Owens wins the first of his four gold medals for the United States at the Berlin Olympics as he takes the 100-meter sprint. On this day in history, rather 1492, Christopher Columbus sets sail for Palos, Spain, on a voyage that takes him to present-day Americas. 1972, the U.S. Senate ratifies the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty between the United States and the Soviet Union. The U.S. would unilaterally withdraw from that treaty in 2002, claiming Russia had already done so, if not officially. 1981, U.S. air traffic controllers go on strike despite a warning from President Ronald Reagan they would be fired, and they were. On this day in history, 1987, the Iran-Contra congressional hearings end with none of the 29 witnesses uh, tying President Ronald Reagan during uh, uh, rather directly to the uh, diversion of arms sales profits to Nicaraguan rebels. And in 1994, on this day in history, Stephen Breyer is sworn in as the Supreme Court's newest justice in a private ceremony at Chief Justice William Rehnquist's Vermont summer home. Well, in other news, President Trump on Monday uh, threatened legal action over a bill passed by the Nevada legislature to send mail-in ballots to all voters ahead of the November 3rd presidential election. The legislature on Sunday pushed through the bill despite objections from Secretary of State Barbara Szyzewski, the only statewide Republican elected official on a party-line vote. It would give Democrat Governor Steve Sisolak the power to command the Secretary of State to adjust election procedures during a state emergency, state of emergency. The bill also expands um, who can turn in ballots uh, provision many Republicans in the state said could open the door for ballot harvesting. 
In an illegal late night coup, Nevada's clubhouse governor made it impossible for Republicans to win the state, Trump said in a tweet Monday. Post office could never handle the traffic of mail-in votes without preparation, using COVID to steal the state. See you in court. Uh, Trump, in a tweet on Sunday, called the move by the Nevada legislature outrageous and said it should be met with immediate litigation. Democrats have dismissed concerns that universal mail-in voting could lead to fraud, saying there's little evidence that it's happened on a wide scale in the past. Meanwhile, Republicans have pointed out mail-in voting has seldom been conducted on the scale Democrats currently propose. They also distinguish between absentee voting, in which one has to request a ballot, uh, and usually proven, uh, provide a reason for being unable to vote on Election Day, and universal mail-in voting, in which the governor, or rather government, sends ballots to every registered voter, whether they have, been, uh, have registered or uh, rather requested a ballot or not. And a number of groups, including the ACLU and Sierra Club, have asked High Court, the Supreme Court, to get involved. Well, they've denied a request to halt the construction of the border wall. The Supreme Court, by a 5-4 vote, has denied that request to halt construction of President Trump's border wall over environmental concerns. A number of groups, including the ACLU and the Sierra Club, had asked the high court to get involved again after the justices last year cleared the way for the administration to use military funds for construction while the case played out in the courts. A federal appeals court had ruled against the administration last month, but the justices for now have given another temporary victory to the administration. And a federal appeals court has vacated the death sentence of Boston Marathon bomber Sarnayev. Wow. Based on the opinion that the judge in the case did not vet the jury properly with regard to possible bias stemming from pretrial publicity. A core promise of our criminal justice system, uh, he wrote, is that even the very worst among us deserves to be fairly tried and lawfully punished, a point forcefully made by the then U.S. attorney for Massachusetts during a presser at the trial's end. A three-judge panel wrote, well, they added to uh, help make that um, that promise a reality. Decisions long on our books say that a judge handling a case involving pre- uh, prejudicial pretrial publicity must elicit the kind of uh, and degree of each prospective juror exposure to the case or the parties if asked by the counsel. Um, and they refer to a particular case. Only then can the judge reliably assess whether a potential juror can ignore that publicity as the law requires. But despite a diligent effort, the judge here did not meet the standards set by um, the precedent case and its successors. Sarnayev was convicted and sentenced to death in 2015 for carrying out the April 15, 2013 attack at the marathon in Boston. The finish line with his older brother, Tamerlan, uh, who died in a shootout uh, with police after a manhunt. The attack at the marathon killed three people, injured more than 260 others. Sarnayev's lawyers had been uh, trying to overturn his death sentence. They said it was impossible to find a jury, a fair jury in Boston because the explosion traumatized the region. The explosion that he was responsible for, therefore prejudicing the jury pool, he argues. Well, the spacecraft landed off the coast of Pensacola, Florida. NASA astronauts have splashed down in SpaceX, the capsule, as the historic mission has returned to Earth. We'll tell you more about that in just a few moments. But I do need to take a break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Later in the second hour of the program, we'll share a classic interview with Michael Barone, how America's political parties change and how they don't. That's coming up in the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, NASA astronauts splashed down in SpaceX, the capsule, 
in this historic mission as they returned to Earth. Um, they landed off the coast of Pensacola, Florida. Uh, Doug Hurley and Bob Benkin, they splashed down in the Gulf of Mexico in a SpaceX Crew Dragon spacecraft on Sunday, ending an historic two-month trip to space. The mission marked the first time that astronauts have launched from American soil since the final space shuttle flight in 2011. Well, after deploying two Drogue parachutes and then the capsule's main parachute, the spacecraft landed off the coast of Pensacola at about 2.48 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. The spacecraft named Endeavour, love that, by the astronauts left the International Space Station on Saturday. Hurley and Benkin, both veterans of space shuttle missions, had boarded the uh, orbiting space lab on the 31st of May following the early anticipated launch of the Demo-2 mission of the Kentucky Space Kentucky Kennedy Space Center atop of uh, SpaceX Falcon 9 rocket. With wind at two knots, weather conditions for the capsule's return to Earth were ideal. The capsule was hoisted aboard the SpaceX recovery ship Go Navigator, and it's... Um, uh, hatch was opened at 3.59 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. Benkin was the first to exit the capsule, giving a thumbs up to the recovery team. Hurley followed shortly after, also giving the thumbs up. Great to have NASA astronauts return to Earth after very successful two-month mission. Thanks to you all, tweeted President Trump. 36 of 50 cities recently surveyed reported double-digit surge in murder rates. Large cities uh, see the double digits in homicide in the first half of 2020. More than three dozen American cities are seeing these double digit surge. Uh, the country's 50 largest recently surveyed find that found rather that they are all seeing a staggering rise in murders, a 24% increase this year so far over 2019, according to the Wall Street Journal. There have reportedly been 3,612 murders in 2020 so far. According to the report, Chicago, Illinois has been the biggest or seen the biggest spike, claiming more than one of every eight murders reported out of all cities surveyed. Murder rates increased in cities with typically high crime, such as Detroit and Philadelphia, but also areas not usually associated with violence, including Phoenix and Omaha, according to the Wall Street Journal. According to the report, robberies, rapes, and burglaries largely saw decreases in the past month as people have been asked to stay indoors as a result of government mandates surrounding the novel coronavirus. Governor Kate Brown has called a special session to balance the state budget. She's uh, convening this session, um, 8 o'clock a.m. Monday, August the 10th, to rebalance the state budget by addressing the state revenue shortfall created by COVID-19. The governor issued the following statement today, saying this crisis has impacted all of us. I should say um, this was on the 31st. Oregon families, businesses, nonprofits and local governments have all had to cut costs. The state of Oregon has been uh, tightening its belt as well with a nearly one billion dollar budget deficit in the, the current biennium. There's more work to do. These decisions will not be easy. Oregon has been smart with our reserves and safe for a rainy day, preparing us to weather this economic storm. But if we have... Um, but if we use too much of our savings now, then we'll be stuck with an even bigger budget gap for the next biennium. Putting out, uh, putting off tough decisions this summer will only leave us with impossible choices next January. Unlike the federal government, she went on to say, Oregon must balance our state budget. State and local governments have been left reeling from the economic downturn. For months, we have waited for Congress to take action, and it is still my hope that they will include aid for states and local governments in the coronavirus relief package currently being negotiated. We we need to preserve critical services like health care, education and senior services during this pandemic. And we must do more to address the disparities in state support for Oregon's underserved communities, particularly our black, indigenous, Latinx, Pacific Islander and other communities of color. 
I would like to thank legislators uh, for beginning this work already, and I look forward to rolling up our sleeves and crafting an updated budget that serves all Oregonians. In her proclamation calling for the session, the governor also noted her support for urgent legislation that builds on matters concerning uh, the first special session, including additional police accountability reforms. And again, that special session will begin August the 10th at 8 o'clock a.m. Interesting headlines. Here's one of them. Portland protests turning more peaceful while demonstrators express frustration at turnout. Another headline. Portland protests grow violent as feds step back. Now, these are both uh, reports on the same day. I guess you can decide which of the two versions or at least headlines is most accurate. There have been 67 consecutive nights of demonstrations in Portland. Um, Uh, More than two months of unrest between demonstrators and law enforcement in the wake of George Floyd's death, although that in in the minds of many observers uh, has faded from being the primary uh, issue that at least these demonstrations have have, uh, brought to the attention of those observing. In the latest gathering Sunday night, one report says an estimated 400 people came together to demonstrate against police violence and racism, chanting slogans like defund police and stay woke in front of the federal courthouse that's been at the center of violent classes in recent uh, weeks. Yet some of the protesters expressed disappointment and frustration at the declining turnout, and there were no reported arrests. Portland's police bureau described the demonstration near the courthouse Sunday night as a peaceful event that ended with protesters spilling out into the streets surrounding the park adjacent to the building. Vehicular traffic was unable to get through for several hours, police said, but by midnight, the majority of the crowd left the area. Police say they didn't interact with those demonstrators, although the Oregonian reports uh, that their presence has been uh, light. As a whole, the newspaper adds the protests have taken a peaceful turn since federal officers relinquished their job of protecting the courthouse four days ago. Well, they relinquished their job, but it's being, they have been replaced by local authorities. And then the other headline, Portland protests growing more violent with federal uh, officers taking a lower profile in Portland. Protesters are turning their ire on local police using the same tactics of throwing bottles and firing lasers into officers' eyes as Black Lives Matter demonstrations enter the 10th week. New violence over the weekend seemed to undercut the city and state leaders' claim that it was the presence of feds that had sparked the violence. Portland police also reported Sunday morning that they're seeing demonstrators cloaking themselves as journalists to engage in the violence, a tactic the federal officers also faced, and one that um, complicates questions about press freedom and the ability to control crowds. Now, these are two different accounts of the same events, um, one from the Oregonian, the other from Washington Times, uh, again, saying that uh, things are peaceful, things are not. And then there's this. Uh, We know that there was an effort to provide free Bibles to those who were in the area demonstrating, uh, seeking presumably for justice and uh, peace. Uh, But rioters carrying Black Lives Matter signs threw Bibles into a fire in front of the federal courthouse in Portland. And this was on Sunday and burned an American flag, leaving bystanders wondering what that act of arson had to do with protesting against police brutality. Uh, Again, the message being blurred by those who are here for whatever reason uh, is uh, a departure from what we were led to believe was the goal. People began starting a fire in the street in front of the federal courthouse, which started with burning a Bible, then an American flag, until more and more items were added. This is according to COIN reporter Danny Peterson, who was at the scene. Finally, around 1 a.m., yellow-clad members of the group Moms United for Black Lives Matter went over to the fire and put it out with the bottles of water and stamped it out. Left-wing activists bring 
a sack of Bibles to burn at the federal courthouse in Portland. Ian Cheong, managing editor of Human Events, wrote in a post with a video that shows Bibles being tossed into a fire. Do not be under the illusion that these protests and riots are anything but an attempt to dismantle all of Western civilization and upend centuries of tradition and freedom of religion. Riots in Portland have been ongoing since the 25th of May. Varying accounts of what's happening here in the city of Portland. And I will say for the last uh, several nights, I've heard helicopters overhead uh, monitoring, witnessing what's happening in downtown Portland. Meanwhile, one of um, John Schaefer's constituents couldn't uh, have put it more bluntly, passed a resolution encouraging residents of this eastern Oregon county to ignore Governor Kate Brown's new stay home orders or I won't vote for you. Schaefer, who is chairman of the Umatilla County Board of Commissioners, isn't willing to take that defiant stance. Well, Umatilla County is the first in Oregon to return to stay-home orders, drawing bitter responses. Which counties might be next? Well, big question mark there. We'll talk more about it when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour of today's program, we'll share a classic interview with Michael Barone, how America's political parties change and how they don't. Coming up, second hour of today's program. Well, Umatilla County is the first in Oregon to return to stay-home orders, drawing some pretty bitter responses, which... Um, counties might be next is the big question. Well, the county is the state's current viral epicenter at 234 known cases for every 10,000 people. It's had more than five times the rate of infections as the state's average. About 23% of people who've been tested recently have learned that they have the virus and it's more than four times the state average. Meanwhile, after uh, conducting a random sampling of residents in the city of Hermiston, Oregon State University, estimates say a startling one in six residents had the virus as of last weekend. Even so, according to a representative, um, John Schaefer, whose constituents said, hey, pass a resolution encouraging residents of this eastern Oregon county to ignore governors, uh, Kate Brown's new stay-at-home order, or I won't vote for you, uh, says that um, uh, even so, I've heard from way more people who are unhappy than people who are happy with this new stay-at-home order. Well, the move has left residents there across the state wondering if their counties are next. Well, back in March, the governor ordered the state's more than 4.1 million residents to leave home only for essential tasks, then started lifting her order for most counties in phases about seven weeks later on the 15th of May, mandating that residents remain at home once again when certain uh, numbers are reached. So it's no surprise that her reinstated order has sparked a particularly bitter response in Umatilla County, but it stands and they must return home if they're going to follow her orders. Well, Yale epidemiology professor Dr. Harvey Risch on CNN host John Berman, they bickered over hydroxychloroquine on Monday during a heated discussion about the polarizing drug, uh, which the president had hailed as a possible treatment for COVID-19, which I would add is uh, the primary explanation why it's uh, so uh, controversial. Uh, Rich recently wrote an op-ed in support of hydroxychloroquine, and Mr. Rich is a doctor who's actually treating patients. But Dr. Anthony Fauci, Dr. Deborah Burks, and other experts have dismissed the anti-malarial drug being used to combat the coronavirus. Rich cited various studies that backed up his pro-hydroxychloroquine stance, but the host of CNN's New Day disagreed. None of those studies that you uh, just cited are uh, random placebo-controlled trials, uh, what Dr. Fauci refers to as the gold standard, Berman said, as a CNN on-screen um, 
host stated, growing body of evidence shows hydroxychloroquine is ineffective. Well, Dr. Rich responded, that's not actually correct. The problem with those randomized controlled uh, trials is they were trials done on the wrong people. They were trials done on low-risk people with low risk of hospitalization and mortality. You don't do a study of prostate cancer with women because nobody is going to get the outcome. <laughs> well, Dr. Rich says that the studies were conducted on very low-risk people who are not going to get hospitalized or die from the coronavirus. We don't treat those people. We treat high-risk people. Well, Berman then accused Rich, Dr. Rich, of being inconsistent compared to the op-ed, but the Yale epidemiologist disagreed, and the interview grew more contentious. Well, the back and forth among all those in authority as to what to believe has left a lot of people very confused about uh, what course to take and what actually works and doesn't. And it will continue. Meanwhile, young children under five years of age may harbor up to 100 times as much of the coronavirus in their noses and throats as infected adults and older children, according to a study out of Chicago. Our analysis suggests that children younger than five with a mild to moderate COVID-19 have high amounts of SARS-CoV-2 viral RNA in their uh, nasopharynx compared with older children and adults, the researchers stated in the study published by JAMA Pediatrics on Thursday. Young children can potentially be important drivers of SARS-CoV-2 spread in the general population, as has been demonstrated with respiratory, um, I think it's senectile virus, where children with high viral loads are more likely to transmit, they wrote. Well, the authors uh, stated in the report that although their findings did not prove the children infected with COVID-19 were contagious. Other pediatric studies found a correlation between the presence of higher nucleic acid levels with an ability to cultivate the infectious disease. The study was conducted back in March through uh, April and led uh, by uh, Taylor Harold Sargent and um, the Lurie Children's Hospital in Chicago. 145 patients were separated into three groups according to their ages. These groups included 48 adults aged 18 to 65, 51 children 5 to 17 years of age, and 46 children under the age of 5. Well, as Heritage Foundation researchers have demonstrated throughout the coronavirus pandemic, the spread of COVID-19 in the U.S. has been heavily concentrated in a small number of states and among a small number of counties within those states. In fact, 63 percent of U.S. counties still have five or fewer COVID-19 deaths. And even though the U.S. has seen a rapid rise in cases during the past month, the overall levels of concentration have remained fairly consistent. As of the 28th of last month, for example, just 10 states account for 60 percent of all U.S. cases and 68 percent of all deaths greater than their 50% share of the population. The five states with the most cases, New York, California, Florida, Texas, and New Jersey, report 44% of all U.S. cases and 46% of all U.S. deaths. Well, in the past 30 days, the five states with the most reported COVID-19 deaths is very similar, Texas, California, Florida, Arizona, and New York in descending order. Together, these five states reported 52% of all the COVID-19 deaths during the past 30 days, although they account for 36% of the U.S. population. For comparison, Texas reported approximately 3,500 deaths uh, over the past 30 days. In April and May, New York reported the most COVID deaths with 21,000 in April and 6,200 in May as uh, situations began to improve in the state. Um, together, New York and New Jersey alone account for 31% of all COVID-19 deaths, though they include only 9% of the U.S. population. Those two states, uh, states rather, reported 9% of the COVID-19 deaths in the past 
30 days. Two California churches uh, were so eager to meet last weekend that when their services began, worshipers erupted in applause, just being together in close proximity to one another to worship. In Sun Valley, congregants uh, filled Grace Community Church's 3,500-seat sanctuary. They rose, they cheered, some documenting the moment with their iPhone when Pastor John MacArthur opened the second week in a row of in-person service. Pastor MacArthur, who's taken an outspoken stand against churches yielding to government regulations on worship gatherings, said this Sunday was a very special day for a more abundant joy since the congregation was together in person once again. A half an hour away in Riverside, California, worshipers at Harvest Christian Fellowship, they were greeted with uh, pink, purple signs that said, smile with your eyes and wear a mask and just leave room for your Bible and another five and a half feet. It was the third Sunday that Harvest met in a tent half the size of a football field to comply with the state's orders restricting indoor worship. After the first week of meeting under the tent, uh, Pastor Greg Laurie said our church loved it, so Harvest added a second morning service. Yesterday, volunteers scanned attendees' uh, foreheads with infrared thermometers to take the temperatures before they entered the the, uh, tents. Uh, There were rows of six chairs where where they were spaced six feet apart. Masks were required, though, uh, as in many cases, not all wore the uh, masks properly. And signs directed eager worshipers uh, to wave at rather than uh, to touch each other. Longtime Calvary Chapel leader, um, whose 15,000 member congregation joined the Southern Baptist Convention a few years ago, discussed his sermon, uh, in his sermon rather, how people are prone to respond to the pandemic, the economy, social unrest, and so on. And he referenced the debate over masks as one of the divisive examples. He told the vocal crowd, during this pandemic, God wants uh, to use you. People are angry and scared, so you need to look for opportunities to share the love of Jesus. Both pastors have each led their respective congregations for around 50 years as they've grown into two of California's biggest megachurches and their ministries gain national followings. And while grace and harvest services have always looked very different, suits and organ music versus Hawaiian shirts and braise bands, the contrast is heightened as both find ways to worship in person during the coronavirus pandemic. Now, for lots of us, for lots of uh, believers, how churches meet during the pandemic isn't a mere matter of style or structure. These decisions reflect their theology, with leaders explicitly calling out their priorities as a church and what they believe God would have them do in response to the current circumstances. We're going to talk more about that after top of the hour news and traffic. Stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show coming up later this hour. In fact, on our next couple of segments, we'll share a classic interview with Michael Barone, how America's political parties change and how they don't. Uh, we'll share that conversation with you. That's coming up later this hour. Well, two California churches were so eager to meet last weekend that when their services began, worshipers erupted in applause. And Sun Valley congregants filled Grace Community Church's 3,500-seat sanctuary. They rose and cheered. Some documented the moment with their phones taking pictures. Pastor John MacArthur opened the second week in a row of in-person services. Then an hour away in Riverside, California, worshipers rather at Harvest Christian Fellowship, they were greeted with a pink and purple sign that said, Smile with your eyes and wear a mask and just leave room for your Bible and another five and a half feet. It was the third Sunday that Harvest met in a white tent, half the size of a football field, to comply with the state order restricting indoor 
worship. Well, for many Christians, how churches meet during or don't meet during the pandemic isn't merely a matter of style or structure. These are decisions that reflect their theology, with leaders explicitly calling out their priorities as a church and what they believe God would have them do in response to the current circumstance. Well, California, as you may know, reissued shutdown directives last month as the virus rebounded, ordering places of worship to discontinue indoor singing and chanting activities and limit uh, indoor attendance to 25% of the building's capacity or a maximum of 100 attendees, whichever is lower. As happened in Nevada, some churches sued, saying the ban is unconstitutional. They lost that battle. Casinos can remain open, however. Leaders at Grace opposed California's stay-at-home order as it extended through the spring, but agreed to submit to the sovereign purposes of God and stay online. But a few weeks ago, under the new regulations and after 21 weeks of canceling typical services, uh, their response changed. Pastor MacArthur and Grace Elders posted a 2,200-word biblical case for the church's duty to remain open. In a week, 21,000 people signed on to that statement, agreeing that the honor uh, that we rightly owe our earthly governors and magistrates does not include compliance with such official attempt to subvert sound doctrine, corrupt biblical morality, exercise ecclesiastical authority, or supplant Christ as head of the church in any other way, end quote. Well, Jonathan Lehman, a Southern Baptist who has uh, written multiple books about faith and politics, raised concerns in a post for nine marks that Grace's statement doesn't leave much room for faithful Christian leaders to come to other conclusions for their own churches. Say, we're free to do this all we want, Lehman said, but take great care before you say, and you have to do this too. Don't sacrifice our spiritual freedom for your political freedom. Well, MacArthur, who is 81 and celebrated 50 years of ministry last year, worries that Americans' level of concern for their physical health during COVID-19 has become a determinant uh, to their spiritual health, and the latter determines their eternal fate. Barna Group found that one in three practicing Christians stopped going to church in any form during the pandemic. He has voiced his frustration with how few big churches are continuing to meet in spite of state regulations or coronavirus risks. Large churches are shutting down until they say January, he said in his update Friday. I don't have any way to understand uh, that. Um, then uh, they don't know what the church is. Well, Andy Stanley's North Point Community Church with 38,000 attendees in the Atlanta area was the first major church to delay Sunday worship gatherings in its building until 2021, though the church will still gather in smaller in-person groups that can practice social distancing. Uh, J.D. Greer's 12,000-member Summit Church in North Carolina is transitioning to a house church model for the remainder of the year. The proportion of pastors who don't anticipate returning to normal in-person gatherings in 2020 jumped from 5% at the start of July to 12% last week, according to Barna. Well, during Sunday's sermon, uh, John MacArthur, a uh, pastor, suggested that churches that close are not true churches. There has never been a time when the world didn't need the message of the true church, he said. I have to say, true church, I hate to think of that, but there's so many false forms of the church um, saying, let them, those false churches, shut down, making a distinction between his own. The congregation laughed and then cheered. Well, some critics have questioned why Grace didn't meet outside or adjust its indoor gatherings to meet health department guidelines rather than resort to a form of civil disobedience. Others brought up the risk of infection since experts suggest church contexts, particularly with large crowds not practicing social distancing, are particularly susceptible to and responsible for several recent outbreaks. 
given the flare-ups in some places, the churches that reopened have been following, in many cases, some uh, rigid standards, but at the same time, is that enough? That's a quote from Scott McConnell from Lifeway Research. He's the executive director speaking to Religious News Service, noting a recent drop in reopening among California churches as cases spike. Those questions, I think, will increasingly be asked. Well, Phil Johnson, who's the executive director of MacArthur's Grace to You Ministry, said in a tweet that moving gatherings outside to comply with state regulations wasn't an option for Grace due to the size of the congregation and the California heat. He also said you don't have to shut down the whole church just because people might catch an illness. Lori, whose church borrowed a giant tent for, from evangelist um, Nick Viek. I didn't pronounce that correctly, but uh, for its recent worship setup sees the outdoor setting as our newest response to keeping people safe in California. Lori is 67. He's uh, seen the bright side of the pandemic adjustments from the start, and he celebrated spiritual awakenings that took place online as more viewers accessed his sermons and live streams. He shares concerns about closed churches with fellow evangelicals. He says he's he believes the local church cannot be replaced by online worship, and he fears government overreach is regulating worship during the pandemic. However, he's also spoken out against downplaying the impact of the virus. He says, I'll be honest with you, Speaking to the Los Angeles Times in April, one of the things that kind of irritates me is the way some people are not really responding appropriately to the very real threat of the coronavirus. Sometimes people are just ignoring it as though this has uh, not been asked of us, and I think we want to be uh, considerate of others. One fellow Southern California pastor has suggested that whether leaders see the coronavirus as a continued threat often determines the level of precautions they will take around the meetings. In a LifeWay research survey released last week, more than a quarter of pastors, or 27%, said maintaining unity amid conflicts over reopening was one of the biggest pressures they faced. They worried about the politicization of mask wearing and social distancing and how different members of the congregation regarded each other as a result. MacArthur on Friday, he acknowledged there are church members who might not feel comfortable at indoor gatherings or might want to wear masks and social distance. We love you just the same in doing whatever the things you are feeling safer in doing, he said, noting that masks and um, uh, water would be provided in the new outside seating where the live stream was projected outside uh, the seminary building. Well, for the most uh, part, Christians who fear that their right to worship freely is being taken away believe this is not the time for winsomeness, MacArthur stands by the church's decision to reopen enough that he's willing to risk the legal ramifications or pursue a legal battle, he said. The Los Angeles Public Health Department is looking into Grace Church for not complying with the restrictions and on uh, indoor worship and singing. We are investigating reports that services were held indoors, the department said in a statement, speaking to Christianity Today today. We remind uh, all houses of worship, consistent with other business sectors, although it's not a business, that also had to close indoor operations, that services must be delivered outdoors or virtually only at this time due to the current levels of COVID-19 spread. If the levels of spread were much better and control was sustained, we could return to reopening limited indoor operations for those, for these and others, and potentially reopen additional business sectors. So the battle goes back and forth, and I thought it was rather interesting that among pastors, their greatest concern is unity among believers, that some would look at others within the congregation. We're talking about within the body of Christ, because they choose to respond in one way, uh, look down on them or have a, a negative view of them as opposed to those who uh, choose to worship in a different way. So internally, this threatens to create something of a rift. I think 
uh, as we look at the different decisions being made by pastors, we need to be very careful about the conclusions we draw about one another because we are inexorably linked. We have an assignment as the body of Christ and whether or not we agree with decisions that are being made by leaders elsewhere or even our own, we need to be very careful about pointing an accusatory uh, finger at one another for the sake of uh, unity and for the sake of the gospel. Up next, we're going to hear a classic interview with Michael Barone, how America's political parties change and how they don't. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, the election of 2016 prompted journalists and political scientists to write obituaries for the Republican Party or prophecies of a new dominance. But it was all rather familiar. Whenever one of the two great parties says a setback, we heard, this is the end of the Democratic Party, or the Republican Party is going out of existence. Yet both parties survive, and, well, they thrive. Well, in How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't, my next guest, American Enterprise Institute resident fellow Michael Barone, a renowned expert on American politics, contends that America's major political parties remain exceptionally resilient, even in the face of Donald Trump's unexpected victory and the hysterical analysis that it spawned. He argues that throughout American history, both parties have maintained their essential character while constantly adapting to changing circumstances. Well, Michael Barone brings a deep understanding of our electoral history. Uh, He illuminates how both parties have adapted swiftly or haltingly to shifting opinion and emerging issues, to economic change and cultural currents, to demographic flux. At the same time, each has maintained a constant character. We'll ask him about that. There are They are the yin and yang, he writes, of the American political life, together providing vehicles for expressing most citizens' views in a nation that has always been culturally, religiously, economically, and ethnically diverse. Well, Michael Barone is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, senior political analyst for the Washington Examiner, and author of the new book, How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. He's one of our nation's most renowned political analysts, co-author of The Almanac, of American politics since its first edition and author of several other books. We are so delighted to have you with us. Welcome, Michael Barone. Well, thank you very much, Georgine. And you gave a uh, very apt summary of my latest little book, America's, uh, How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. Uh, (laughs) It's based on, it's a short book, but it's based on my more than 50 years of experience of observing, participating in commenting on uh, America's political system and par- our partisan election. When I first read the the title of the book, I, f- I found it interesting, but I find the book so much more interesting than I anticipated and learned far more than I expected uh, from, as you po- point out, this little book. Um, let's talk about the, America's two major political parties. Uh, you point out that um, America is home to the oldest and third oldest political parties in the world. Tell us a little bit about the Democratic Party founded in 1832, and the Republican Party, founded in 1854? Well, the Democratic Party, founded 187 years ago to secure the re-election of Andrew Jackson and to prevent the uh, rechartering of the Second Bank of the United States. Um, they were successful in accomplishing those goals in the, uh, within less than a decade. The Republican Party founded 165 years ago to oppose the Kansas-Nebraska Act that allowed slavery in territories, the territories where it had previously been forbidden, and uh, to prevent the spread of slavery. And, of course, the Republican Party was successful within 11 years, not only 
preventing the spread of slavery, but in abolishing slavery altogether with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution. But the parties went on, and they've had this basic, each of them has had its basic character, um, even while they changed position on substantive issues, over a long period of time. The Republican Party has always been centered on a core constituency made up of people who are widely considered to be typical Americans, but who by themselves are not a majority. The Democratic Party has always been a coalition of outgroups of people who consider themselves members of uh, groups that are not typical Americans, but who put together when they stick together, which they don't always do, but when they stick together can be a majority. Uh, and that's as true today as it was in 1832 and 1854. You make the point that America's major political parties remain durable and adaptable. And I think many people are questioning that today as third parties emerge or independents are emerging. Do you see the trend that has survived over many, many years continuing even under today's uh, what we consider from our vantage point rather unique set of circumstances? Well, I, I, I think it's likely that they'll continue. Nothing is certain in uh, politics or democratic uh, Republican governance, but uh, the fact is these parties have each suffered uh, electoral setbacks much worse mm-hmm. than anything we've seen in the last 30 years. The Democrats won a huge victory. The Republicans suffered a huge defeat in 1932 when Franklin Roosevelt won the first of four elections uh, that gave us the, the New Deal historians have told this story vividly, and it's a familiar one to people acquainted with American political history. But the Democratic Party also suffered a huge reverse in 1920. Uh, Their candidate, after eight years of the Democrat Woodrow Wilson as president, they had inflation, we had uh, uh, recession, we had an influenza epidemic, we had an inclusive conclusion to World War I. And, um, and a presidential uh, a president who had a stroke and was out of contact with the outer world uh, for at least eight months. And that uh, Democratic Party got only 34 percent of the vote. And yet the Democratic Party rebounded to become competitive with the Republicans in 10 years, just as the Republican Party became competitive with Democrats within 10 years after their huge defeat in 1932. Um, these parties represent uh, forces that are uh, pretty basic in American life, and uh, they just don't go away after they've suffered a big defeat. Uh, they recover, they uh, change their positions, they adapt to new times, and they take advantage of the incumbent party's mistakes. Given that history, and perhaps because that history is little known, why is it so common for journalists and political scientists to forecast the permanent triumph or imminent demise of our major political parties once there's been an electoral win or defeat. I've heard it over the course of my lengthening years uh, so many times that one party or the other is drawing to a close because of the outcome of the latest electoral challenge. Well, there's a in journalism, which I've been participating in or observing closely for more than 50 years. Um, there's a, a premium on being the first one with a story, on leading the pack, on, on sniffing out an emerging trend before everybody else does. So there's a tendency to say, well, the Democratic Party is through uh, when they've uh, you know, lost an election, when the Republican president's been reelected with 51% of the vote, as happened in 2004. Uh, or after President Obama was reelected in 2012, again with 51% of the vote, the Republican Party is through. Um, people tend to forget 
when you made false predictions of something that uh, never comes to pass. But uh, if you if you're out there first with something that does happen, um, there's a professional premium, and they think <laughs> that's perhaps kind of a cynical view, but. You know, it, it, one of the things you want to do in journalism is to try to spot emerging trends, try to spot stories that other people have missed. Um, and sometimes, of course, that produces very productive journalism. The other factor operating is that many of these stories are written by optimists and who are partisan. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the people predicting the demise of the Republican Party tend to be optimistic Democrats. Uh, when pe- predictors of the uh, of the demise of, of 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 the Democratic Party will come from optimistic Republicans or pessimistic Democrats, <laughs> which undermines the credibility of journalism in general and partisans in particular. One of the the cases that you make. Let me just say this: I appreciate that in the book how America's political parties change and how they don't. You give us a context and history that helps us make sense of our current day. So that we are a little more cautious in embracing, you know, the latest pronouncement. But one of the things that I found rather interesting is the point you make that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party both maintain their essential character while constantly adapting to changing circumstances. I think people sometimes wonder if a party has moved too far in one direction. For example, the argument now is that Democrats are moving far too far to the left. Are they maintaining their um, their core um, values, their essential character, or are we seeing just the common shifts and adjustments that we've seen over uh, the years? Well, politicians are optimists usually, and uh, they sometimes overestimate the extent to which public opinion is in line with their own uh, policies. And, uh, you know, if, uh, it, or they simply stay true to policies they back, even though the public doesn't go along with them. So you saw the Democratic Party lose five out of six presidential elections from 1968 to 88, um, coming right after most political observers said, gee, the Democrats have a natural majority in this country. They proceed to lose five out of six elections. At least some of those, their nominees were well to the left of the par- of, of where the public was uh, at that time. And, uh, you know, eventually Bill Clinton came along, secured a Democratic nomination, which almost nobody seemed to want that year, and uh, came out with a somewhat more moderate platform that adjusted to uh, what, pre- you know, the, the problems that were li- the programs that were liabilities for previous Democratic nominees. Um, and he won the election. Uh, and Democrats have won four out of the next seven out of the seven um, presidential elections that followed, even as Republicans won majorities in the uh, House of Representatives in most of the congressional elections. So, you know, uh, politics, uh, political uh, programs, uh, politicians, uh, uh, platforms are a mixture of uh, calculation and, and conviction. Um, things they believe to be right and things they believe could be popular. Um, The proportions of calculation and conviction vary in the different politicians. Uh, And sometimes there can be, uh, you know, more conviction uh, than there is calculation and they find that they lose. But sooner or later, as we've seen over 187, 165 years, they adjust. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation with uh, my guests, Michael Barone, the book, How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. Fascinating analysis. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. 
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Continuing my conversation with Michael Barone, the book is titled How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. I think you will find much surprising information in the book as well as very relevant history. Let's talk about the essential characteristics of both the Republican and Democrat Party. What are those characteristics? And I know that there's some blurring of lines, although with the 2016 election, perhaps less so. What are some of these uh, essential characteristics? Well, the essential characteristic of the Republican Party, I think, over the years has been that it's centered on a core constituency of people who are considered by themselves and others to be typical Americans, but by themselves are are not a majority of the public. They need more votes in order to win. The Democratic Party has always been a coalition of opposites of different groups considered not to be typical Americans, but who, if they're united, make up a majority. So in the 19th century, um, the Andrew Jackson coalition was Southern slaveholders and later segregationists on the one hand, and uh, Catholic immigrants in big cities. Uh, they basically, the Democrats believed in segregation in the South and the saloon in the North. Um, and uh, the Republican core constituency in its beginnings in the 1850s were New England Yankees and their offspring who moved westward across the Young Republic to upstate New York, uh, northern Ohio, southern Michigan, founded the city of Chicago, moved on beyond to Iowa and Nebraska. That was the core support for the Republican Party. Um, And today, obviously, you have different coalitions. The core Republican constituency, I, I would characterize as white married Christians, thought by many people to be typical Americans. Uh, Once people fulfilling that description were a majority of the population, they're not a majority anymore. Uh, uh, But they're a large group, and they are faithful to the Republican Party by and large, and uh, the the Republicans try to build majorities from there. Uh, The Democratic Party is a coalition of outside groups. If you look at the groups that typically vote 85 to 90 percent Democratic, You see uh, relatively low-income, non-college graduate black Americans, uh, very religious, tend to be avid churchgoers and believe in traditional Christian morality, Uh, and uh, what my friend Joel Kotkin calls gentry liberals, uh, high-income people with uh, college degrees, graduate school degrees, uh, white people, uh, very secular. Very, This is the group that is least likely to believe in traditional uh, religions and more likely to believe uh, in, in, uh, in, in that religious conduct should not in any way be privileged and kind of dubious about uh, the, how far the free exercise of religion guaranteed by the First Amendment should go. Um, those are groups that have very different incomes. They have very different uh, religious beliefs and beliefs about the price of religion and public life and public issues. Um, they have very different views on, for example, same-sex marriage, uh, but uh, they are united in supporting the Democratic Party, at least if somebody doesn't come forward and spotlight those issues and make them the biggest issues of the day. How did the two parties evolve in the 20th century, and how do you see that either continuing or changing in the 21st? Well, the Democratic Party in the 20th century uh, was a party that for many years contained a large conservative bloc as well as mm-hmm. uh, Democratic liberals who backed the policies, the big government policies of Presidents Woodrow Wilson and Franklin Roosevelt. Um, the conservative group came partly from the Democrats' 19th century support of free markets and free trade, 
uh, didn't believe in government interference. Obviously, that changes under Wilson and Roosevelt, but many Democrats continue to identify with that. And it comes from Democrats, Southern Democrats in particular, um, carrying a Democratic uh, Party identification that goes back to the Civil War and to um, opposition to the conduct of the Civil War, the aftermath, where opposition to Republicans' attempts to secure equal rights for black Americans in Reconstruction period. And um, that lasts a long time because the Civil War was a hugely searing event. I mean, go to any small town uh, that had, you know, a thousand people in a township in uh, in the 1860s, and in the town, in the courthouse square, there's a monument there in the north and in the south. Uh, it's a monument of with names of people who died in that Civil War, 30, 40, 50 names in a town of a thousand. That was a really searing impact. So you have in 1960 the um, John F. Kennedy, liberal Democrat, Catholic from Massachusetts. His number two state in percentage terms was Georgia, Southern Georgia, Baptist state, uh, you know, a, a, a conservative state on a number of issues that most black people in Georgia then were not allowed to vote. Um, they, why did they vote for Kennedy? Well, it was only 96 years since General Sherman's troops marched through Georgia and they were mm-hmm. still angry about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Attitudes changed as uh, President Jimmy Carter from South Georgia um, is a good example uh, of that. Uh, his political views, I think, during his presidency evolved significantly and in a positive direction, in my opinion, uh, from what those he probably held as a younger man in segregated Georgia. Um, but the, uh, you know, the, that took a long time to change because the impact of the Civil War was so great. Um, likewise, you have liberal Republicans uh, in many of the northern states uh, and in some of the southern states, too, although they seldom won statewide elections there before the 1970s. And they were uh, why were they, you know, they supported many of the New Deal government expansion programs, people like Governor four-term Governor Nelson Rockefeller of New York, but they opposed why they opposed the Democrats. Well, they felt the Democrats ran corrupt urban political machines. They felt the Democrats got, were dependent on the votes of violent, prone labor unions. They disliked the Democrats because they had a lot of segregationist Southerners in their party. Um, that was true in 1960. By the 1980s, those factors had really kind of vanished from the political scene. And Nelson Rockefeller's heirs, including his nephew, Jay Rockefeller, ran for office and won as a Democrat. Hmm. In what ways um, have the parties not changed in in uh, nod to the subtitle of your book? Well, not changed. I think that same basic character. Republicans clustered around a core constituency. Democrats, a, uh, a coalition of of of, uh, of, of various groups, mm-hmm. of out groups that are often have conflicts among each other. I mean, you know, the Demo- the the we, this year we see voters who identify themselves as Republicans are giving 90% support to Donald Trump. That's even though he is different on some issues like trade, immigration, and some aspects of foreign policy from the previous, most recent Republican president, George W. Bush, uh, for whom people who identified as Republicans gave 85 to 90% support as well. So the Republicans tend to support their incumbents in most circumstances. Uh, Democratic Party, we see some 
uh, differences on cultural issues in the Democratic Party. I noted that the presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke from El Paso, Texas, uh, said that he doesn't uh, want uh, he doesn't want ta- he wants tax exemptions to be taken away from churches mm-hmm. and religious institutions that don't perform same-sex marriage. Well, that's going to close a bunch of Roman Catholic churches and uh, welfare institutions in his hometown of uh, El Paso, Texas, where they serve a predominantly Mexican-American population. It's going to close down or severely impact uh, historically black churches, which have played a tremendous, go back to it before the Civil War, and have played a tremendously constructive role in American life for uh, almost two centuries um, and, uh, you know, they, they don't, uh, conduct same sex marriages. Uh, so that's, you know, Beto O'Rourke right now is, uh, not running well in the polls and that statement probably didn't get a lot of traction among Democrats. But, uh, I think that, uh, if you were running ads for another candidate, Democratic candidate, you want to win, uh, votes of black Americans who are a majority of the Democratic primary turnout in South Carolina, the early state of South Carolina. Uh, you might want to bring up that issue. Yeah, yeah. Well, the book, once again, is titled How America's Political Parties Change and How They Don't. And rather than a dry, uninteresting tome, it is fascinating in its historic detail and relevance to not only what's what we've seen in the past, but what's happening today. Michael Barone, it is such a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much for talking. Well, thank you so much for having me on and for your kind words. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Tomorrow and Wednesday, we're looking forward to a conversation with Dr. Michelle. Her book is out. She is the host of The Dad Whisperer. We'll tell you all about her book. And also, we're going to talk a little bit about her surprising turn of events. She has uh, recently been married, and that is a story of God's faithfulness and patience on her part as well. We'll Get into all of that when she joins me on Tuesday and Wednesday, a continuing conversation with Dr. Michelle on the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the regional body of the Church of the Brethren split late last month over the issue of homosexuality. This is the first official rift in a long-expected division of the pietistic Anabaptist denomination, historically known as Dunkers. Well, 19 of 42 churches withdrew from the Southeastern District Conference during an annual meeting in Jonesboro, uh, Tennessee, on the 25th of July, and according to the denomination's official news site, the departing congregations want the brethren to exercise more authority over ministers and congregations that deviate from the church's official position on human sexuality. Now, the Church of the Brethren does not affirm LGBT ministers unless they are committed to celibacy, nor does it allow ministers to perform same-sex wedding ceremonies. However, about 40 of the denomination's roughly 1,000 congregations belong to the Supportive Communities Network. It's organized by the Brethren Mennonite Council for Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgender Interests, and they have not been punished or expelled. One of the distinctives of the historic Peace Church has been its refusal to punish dissenters. Well, the Brethren traditionally claim there should be no force in religion. Well, before the Tennessee meeting closed, the moderator led the remaining churches in a blessing for the withdrawing churches and the withdrawing churches in a blessing 
for the remaining churches. This is very unusual and quite refreshing, even though there's a broad disagreement. The Southeastern District, which includes Alabama, South Carolina, Tennessee, and parts of North Carolina and Virginia, is one of 24 in the U.S. The majority of the, uh, the churches that decided to leave are in the East Tennessee, West North Carolina area. Some are expected to join the Covenant Brethren Church, which was formed as a haven for potentially departing churches in 2019 with a statement about the failure of denomination to stand strong on biblical authority and address the homosexual issue. Well, the Church of the Brethren's official statement about same-sex marriage dates to 1983, saying that covenantal relationships between homosexual persons are not acceptable. The statement also committed the Brethren to challenging openly the widespread fear, hatred, and harassment of homosexual persons and advocating the right of homosexuals to jobs, housing, and legal justice. It was reaffirmed in 2011. In 2017, though, the church's annual conference recognized a lesbian couple co-pastoring a congregation in the Pacific Northwest District, prompting talks of a split and a debate about the authority of the national organization to enforce the doctrinal standard. A faction of the church leaders pushed for a new policy allowing for tougher enforcement in 2018. Well, the problem is that our denomination, according to Jim Meyer, who is the Atlantic Northeast District representative, is that our denomination is being perceived as becoming a pro-homosexual denomination by default, not by a decision we'd made, but by a default, by not uh, standing on the decisions that we have made. Opponents warn that the solution could be more divisive than the problem. If you have a big hammer for same-sex marriage, the same big hammer is for women in ministry. The same big hammer is for church property matters. Annual conference uh, moderator Carol Shepard spoke uh, to the Mennonite World Review. We sit in the middle, not making everyone perfectly happy, but attempting to live with one another and prioritizing that. Well, the enforcement proposals did not pass. Instead, the church launched a denomination-wide conversation called the Compelling Vision Process, which organized small discussion groups to consider the question, what compels you to follow Jesus? Well, at a national uh, youth adult conference, the top answers to the question were Jesus's love for us, community, discipleship, the life of Jesus, transformation, and God's acceptance of all. At the 2019 annual conference, the top answers were salvation, Jesus' love for us, discipleship, and Jesus' love for others. Well, the annual conference intends to provide a vision statement for all the churches based on the two years of conversations. The statement is supposed to unify the brethren and present the church with a clear vision, notwithstanding ongoing disagreement and doctrinal diversity. Uh, going forward. Well, the articulation uh, statement has scheduled for this year, but has been postponed to 2021 because of the pandemic. Critics say the process does nothing to address elephant in the room. And according to Brethren General Secretary David Steele, the process was never supposed to be about homosexuality. It was intended to move the church conversation above that to matters of faith and vision and where the church ought to be. Steele said the church's response to division and controversy ought to be continuing conversation and prayer and reading scripture together. For the dissenting brethren, that's not good enough. You can't do um, outreach and mission work when your foundation is crumbling, says one of those um, individuals, uh, dissenting brethren, crumbling with major issues that's uh, sitting there. That's Grover Dooling. He's the temporary head of the Covenant Brethren Church. I hope and pray that there's a miraculous healing that hasn't been present in the 40 years we've been trying to find our way around this huge divisive issue. Once again, a challenge to the body of Christ moving forward. Tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with Dr. Michelle 
She's the host of The Dad Whisperer, heard here on KPDQ. We'll talk with her about her new book and her new life, so I hope you'll join us. want to thank James Blinn for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his office. And thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.